Well, today we are going to, we're going to be wrapping up our series called Redefining the Good Life. We've been talking about the good life for the last couple of months, and our hope is that over that time that your vision of the good life, that your idea of the good life has been reoriented to God. That's something that needs to happen for each and every one of us. Whatever it is we think about when we think about the good life needs to be consistent with what God says the good life is all about. And so that's what we've been talking about. And I think that probably the biggest takeaway for me personally has been that the good life is not about me. That's been the biggest one for me. You know what I mean? The good life is not about my personal autonomy. It's not about my financial security. It's not about me preparing to have a comfortable retirement. The good life is about God and what God is doing in the world. That's what it's all about, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'd like to know, how many of you have traveled to another country? Can I see a show of hands? How many of you have traveled to another country? Maybe about half of you or a little more than that. Um, What happens when you go to other places around the world? You get perspective, right? You get perspective. You realize how much bigger the world is than you ever thought, you know, you start to realize that the world is bigger than you thought and you're smaller than you thought. Isn't that kind of what happens when you go to other places in the world? You realize that America is just kind of a, you know, it's kind of one place on the map. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing for us, especially as Americans, where we are very much insulated from the desperate times and situations that billions of people find themselves in on a daily basis all over the world. So today we're going to talk about global missions or global gospel ministry and what that has to do with us. And our goal, by the way, here at Crosspoint Church is not ultimately to build a great church or even a strong church. I mean, we do, of course, want to do that. We're working. We want to be strong and healthy But our goal and vision has to be bigger than that because God's vision is bigger than that. God is working to advance a kingdom, and it's a kingdom of priests that's made up of every nation, every people group, every language, every tribe. God is moving to fill the whole earth with his glory, not just our church, not just your city, the whole earth. God is sowing his word all over the world, and one day he's going to reap a harvest, and we get to be part of that. We get to be part of that, and today is about the harvest. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The good life is lived for the harvest. In Luke 10, chapter 2, Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In John chapter 4, verse 35, this is right after Jesus had revealed his true identity to a foreign woman. He said, do you, he said to his disciples, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. All the way at the end of the book of Revelation, or at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, In chapter 14, this is part of the Apostle John's vision. He said, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead 
with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. That theme of every nation, tribe, language, people group is a major one throughout the Scriptures. And then a few verses down, he continues, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Do you know who he is who sits on the cloud and reaps the harvest? It's Jesus. That's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's Jesus who's Lord of the harvest. It's Jesus who sows the seed. The field is the whole world, and the good seed is the people who hear the gospel and believe it and are transformed. And these people are from every nation and every tribe and every language on the earth. So there are two things that today we need to embrace if we want to experience what God says is the good life. The first thing is we need a bigger vision of the gospel and we need a bigger vision of the church. And so let's start with the gospel. We need a bigger vision of the gospel. The gospel is bigger than you think it is. When Pastor Scott and I were down in Chicago a couple weeks ago at the Verge Conference, one, a guy by the name of Doug Phillips shared a little talk with us sort of about this, and I'd like to kind of pass it on to you from what I can remember in my own way. The gospel's bigger than you think it is. So if you were to ask me a couple years ago, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? I probably would have said something, and I probably still would say something like this. It's the good news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, was sent from the Father to die for our sins and rise from the dead and give us eternal life with God and glorify God's name. That's, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the thing we build our whole life on is what Jesus has done to give us peace with God. I don't know that any of you would disagree with that or say that there's something you know, inaccurate about that statement. The problem, though, is that the gospel's bigger than that. It's a lot bigger than that. My little definition of the gospel only speaks to one relationship, the relationship between God and me. That's the only thing it speaks to. And the gospel's so much more than that. If we go all the way back to the beginning, the book of Genesis. Genesis means beginnings. God had created the universe. He created life. He created man and woman after his own image. And everything was good. Adam and Eve were living in perfect harmony with God. They were obedient. They were fully trusting of everything that God said. Every word that God spoke, they believed with all their heart. They walked with God. They talked with God. They cared for God's creation. There was no sin. There was no chaos in the world. Everything was at peace and in order. Until the day that Adam and Eve decided that they didn't need God to be happy. There were, they were tempted by evil. And in the narrative in Genesis, of course, you know that that's pictured as a serpent. And the serpent simply questions God. That's all he does. He's very subtle. He just questions God. He questions God's word. He questions God's intentions. He questions God's character. And as you know, Adam and Eve choose to trust his word instead of God's word. They listen to the wrong voice. That's, that's what started all of this. 
They listened to the wrong voice. And immediately following this transaction, when Adam and Eve traded God's word for a fleeting pleasure, God shows up. He shows up in the garden, walking in the garden. And Adam and Eve, rather than run to their father, which they had done every other day they had been alive, for the first time they run away from him. They scramble and hide. You know how you ever enter a room and your children, you wonder where's, where's, one of, where's that kid? Where are they? I haven't seen them in a while. Why is it that when that happens you think there's trouble? Because kids, when they've done something wrong, this is what they do at times. They, they run, they scramble, they hide. Just like we do. And for the very first time, fear and shame enter the world and the human experience. And then God speaks in Genesis chapter 3. First, God speaks to the serpent. This is what he says. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what is believed to be the first introduction of the gospel. A foretelling, a prophecy by God foretelling the coming, the future coming of Jesus Christ to destroy the work of the serpent. That's what we see is happening here. Or even in the early chapters of Genesis. And then God speaks to Eve. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Now he has to eat salad. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Nobody appreciated the salad thing, huh? Okay. There's a lot going on, actually, in this short passage. A lot going on here. According to the first few chapters of Genesis, the gospel is introduced to us as the answer to a cosmic problem. Not just a personal problem. This is a cosmic problem. Sin is. And that problem is separation or brokenness. That's what it amounts to. There's now separation between humans and their their maker, their creator, their father. Because of sin, our relationship with God is broken. So first, first of all, the gospel is about our relationship with God. We can go to the next slide, I think. Yes, thank you. The gospel is about our relationship with God. It's about what God has done about our separation from him. That's first and foremost what the gospel is about. But the gospel is more than that. The gospel is also about our relationship to ourselves, how we see ourselves. So the gospel is an answer to our fear, our loneliness, our isolation, our mental illnesses, our depression, and our shame. Those are all consequences of our self-image. The way that we see ourselves because of what God has done and because of what God has said. 
When our relationship with God is broken, we lose our true identity and purpose in life. We feel that separation from God. We feel the guilt and shame that accompanies sin. And that makes us hide from God and it makes us hide from others. And when we're hiding from God and others, we have to look elsewhere for purpose and meaning. And that's exactly what we do. When we're not satisfied with God, when we're not finding our purpose and our peace and our joy in God, we're going to find it somewhere else. We're going to build our identity on something other or someone other than God because of the way we look at ourselves. The gospel is also about our relationship to other people. It's also about our relationship to other people. Our relationship to others has now been threatened and broken because of sin. Because of sin, there is now suspicion and envy and hatred and pride and competition and bitterness between us and other people. None of that existed before sin entered the world. But now relationships fall apart every day. Husbands and wives fight each other for control. Children fight with their parents for power. Children fight with each other for meaningless things. Every relationship, even our closest and strongest friendships, are, is exposed to this brokenness, this decay that sin has brought into the world. And the gospel is the answer to that. The gospel says that I can forgive anybody, no matter what they've done to me. The gospel says that there's healing for any broken relationship, that restoration is possible in Christ. But we can't stop there. The gospel is also about our relationship to creation. Because of sin, our relationship with creation is broken. And now we experience that through natural disasters, tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes, famines, and of course all the, all the resulting poverty. And beyond that, we can trace our own physical brokenness back to sin as well. Cancers, infertility, dementia, Alzheimer's, every kind of sickness and disease are all the result of the brokenness between us And God's good creation. So there's a physical element as well. And finally, the gospel is about our relationship to life. Now because of sin, we're all under the curse of death. We're all slowly decaying. Remember when we talked about that a couple weeks ago? When we talked about eternal life. And so why is this important? Here's why it's important. Because if the gospel is the answer... If the gospel is the answer, then the gospel is the answer to all of this brokenness, not just the brokenness between us and God. Most people are so wrapped up in the day-to-day issues and struggles of life that they aren't even giving much thought to God. Isn't that true? But what if we could show them that the gospel of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, is the answer to our spiritual brokenness, our emotional brokenness, our social brokenness, and our physical brokenness. Because God is going to redeem his creation. It is the answer to all of our financial problems. The gospel is the answer to everything. The gospel is the answer to everything. In fact, when the New Testament writers very... I'm not even sure if there is a verse. If there, if there is, I'm, it's not coming to my mind. I'm not even sure that there is a verse that tells us that we should, we should be going out preaching the gospel to everyone we meet. More often than not, 
we're told to give the gospel to people as an answer to their questions. In other words, if you are living this radical Jesus life, people will ask you questions or they'll ask you to help them in their life. What's the answer? The gospel. The gospel is more often than not presented as an answer than anything else in the New Testament. And it's the answer to everything. And so I just want to tell you that our grasp of the gospel, I think, is too small. We need to see that God's working to restore all things and speaking to all kinds of people all over the world. Now, at the local level here, in, in your city, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, at your kid's school, what does this mean for us? Well, here's what I think it means. When you meet someone new in your neighborhood, for example, how can you be a light to them? How can you be on the move to redeem people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what it's a church, what we're supposed to be doing. That's, that's how we talk about mission as a church. How can you be a carrier of the gospel to this person? It kind of depends on their most urgent need. If the gospel is the answer to everything, then it depends on their most urgent need, I think. Are they hungry for you to share the gospel with them, to know Christ and experience spiritual freedom and forgiveness? Then please tell them about Jesus. Are they hungry for you to listen to them as they share about their personal loneliness and depression? We can go to the next slide, by the way. I I put a whole lot of slides in there today, so this is a little different than normal, but one more. Thank you. Are they hungry for you to listen to them as they share about their personal loneliness and depression? Are they hungry for you to listen to and support them as they navigate a marriage crisis? Maybe that's what they need help with. Maybe they're asking you for help. Then that's what you should give them. Or maybe they're just hungry. Are they just hungry? Maybe they just have some very real physical needs that you can help meet. And so here's how I would sum up the gospel for us as it relates to what God is doing in the world. And I'd like to present two statements as true or false. We'll go to the next slide. The first statement is this. True missions work must involve preaching the gospel and planting churches. What do you think? True or false? I believe that's false. Because if the gospel is the answer to everything, then gospel ministry involves a lot more than just preaching the gospel and planting churches. A lot more. The second statement is this. True missions work is not complete until the gospel is preached and churches are planted. And I believe that that statement is true. That that always must be our goal. That that was the goal of the first century, the, the first century church and the apostles they sent out. That's what they did. They met people's needs. They ministered the gospel through word and deed. And ultimately, the gospel was preached and people were adopted into God's family and churches were started. Everywhere the gospel was preached, that's what we want. It's a ministry of word and deed. So we need a bigger vision of the gospel, but we also need a bigger vision of the church. And now we're going we're gonna to kind of shift our attention a little bit to the New Testament and a passage that we actually looked at last year when we went through the book of Romans. But we're going to take a little different angle on it this morning. And this passage is found in Romans chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. 
uh, 22 to 33. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul is sharing with the church at Rome a little bit of his travel itinerary, which to us seems like, why do we need to know about that? But there's actually a whole lot in this passage that we can learn from today. So I'd like to begin reading in verse 22 of Romans chapter 15. He writes, This is the reason why I, have, why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. I'm going to pause there just for a second. So what's happening here is Paul is asking the Roman churches for financial help as he goes, continues on his missionary journeys. This is a church he's never been to. They don't really know him personally, but he's asking them for help, okay? And then he continues, um, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, because there was a famine going on in Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And then he kind of closes his appeal here. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So, we're going to look at this financial relief project that the Apostle Paul has been working on for quite a long time that he talks about in this passage. He's been collecting money from churches all over the world to bring to the Jerusalem churches who have a lot of struggling families because there's been a famine going on there for some time. And I want you to see that this financial relief campaign for Jerusalem, this collection of money for the poor, is more than just a poverty relief project. It's more than that. It's more than that. In Paul's mind, this is a ministry of the gospel or an outpouring of the gospel. And here's why. This collection of money for the churches in Jerusalem is a display of the gospel's power to unite people from every nation, every ethnicity, every language, every tribe under the authority of Jesus Christ. It is proof that Jesus Christ is making all things new. It is evidence that the gospel is bigger than one nation and bigger than one church. And this kind of ministry shows that there's unity across racial, national, and geographic boundaries because of, because of what Jesus did on the cross to reconcile us to God. This kind of thing never happened before. Never before have, would you have seen in the, in, the, in the ancient world people groups from Achaia and Rome and Spain and all these other places where Paul had collected money, sending money to relieve the poor people in Jerusalem. It just wasn't happening. They didn't care. And there's plenty of evidence that this collection of funds is extremely important to Paul. 
as one of the founders of the early church. For one thing, there are three chapters of the New Testament. Let's go to the next slide. There are three chapters of the New Testament that describe this collection and its purpose. Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 8, and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Three whole chapters of the New Testament focus almost exclusively on this, this poverty relief project. The collection also took a long time. It took almost a year. Local churches were not making single donations. They were often making weekly donations that Paul would then later come by and collect to bring to Jerusalem. Also, it involved churches from at least three provinces, Macedonia, Achaia, and Galatia. There were very few relationships between the Gentile churches and Jewish churches at this time. The people giving money to this ministry did not know personally the people they were helping, but they believed that they owed it to them as a gift because of the spiritual blessings that they shared in Christ. They believed they were one. They believed that those that the Jews, or if you were a Jew, that the Gentiles, who, who formerly you looked at as dirty foreigners, if you were a Jew, but now through the gospel you saw them as your brothers in Christ. And they had this desire to help one another. It involved also sending Titus, who was a key co-worker of Paul's for a long time. Not only that, but the gift was taken to Jerusalem by a large number of people, probably close to 20, which would have been very inefficient and costly. And that suggests that to Paul, the unity between the churches was more important than the size of the actual donation. That this kind of ministry, a gospel ministry, helping the poor, that's gospel ministry to Paul. A big part of his mission, according to Galatians 2, was he was eager to show concern for the poor and help the poor in his ministry. And, he, and this is called gospel ministry. This creates strength. It strengthens the churches. It unifies the churches. In addition to that, Paul delays his ministry to Rome and to Spain, which was a new frontier to him to help bring this gift to Jerusalem, which would have been in the opposite direction. He delays going to... He, never even, he probably never made it to Spain. We're pretty sure he died in Rome. And the two big reasons that Paul works so hard to make this collection a priority among the churches is number one, he's eager to, sh- to help the poor. He's concerned about the poor. And number two, so that the Gentiles might become part of God's family and the church of the future is a gospel-centered church, a church made up of people from every nation and race and language all moving in the same direction. And valuing the same things. Not divided by race anymore. Listen to Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul again describing his ministry to to the Jews and the Gentiles and the churches there. He says, After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, why is Paul concerned that his ministry might be in vain? What could possibly make the preaching of the gospel meaningless? He tells us. It's the attitude of the people who believe it towards others of different racial, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds. That's what can make the preaching of the gospel meaningless. 
If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and you look down at people of other races, ethnicities, people groups, tribes, or based on their income bracket or whatever, the gospel has not taken root in you. That's what he's saying. In Galatians 2.14, Paul tells us he came to the churches in Galatia, or he visited the church in Jerusalem, and he noticed that Peter had separated himself. Formerly, he was eating meals with the Gentiles, but when the circumcision party came, other Jewish leaders came around, Peter was afraid of what they might think of him, and so he removed himself from the Gentile tables, and he started isolating himself with, along with the Jews. And Paul called him out. And he said in front of everyone, what you are doing is not keeping in step with the truth of the gospel. The way you are treating these people of another race or ethnicity is, is a, you might as well reject the gospel. Is basically what he said to Peter. And he repented. Because if the Jews would not receive the Gentiles as brothers with equal standing before God, Paul's whole ministry would be meaningless. Meaningless. That is strong language. Paul's measuring the success of his whole career by whether or not one racial group will reconcile with other racial groups. Racial and ethnic reconciliation is so important to Paul that his ministry stands and falls on it. And that is why he says in Galatians 3, 27 and 28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a summary statement. Because Paul understands something about the church that we have a hard time taking hold of. And this is what we need to see. The church is made up of rich and poor. The church is made up of the strong and the weak, the mature and the immature. The church is made up of both educated and uneducated. The church is made up of old and young. The church is made up of black, Hispanic, white, Asian, Jew, people of every tribe, nation, and language all over the world. The, the church is even made up of politically conservative and politically liberal people. Yes, it is. And for Paul, the gospel will not take root until all of these diverse disciples of Jesus welcome and accept each other and treat each other like family. Like family. Because that's what we are. We're a big worldwide family. Now, what are the practical implications to all of this? We're just starting this conversation here. And so I want you to wrestle with some questions with me today. The first question is, how important is ra racial reconciliation to you? How important is racial reconciliation to us? Did you know that Milwaukee is, by many studies, the, num the most racially divided city in America, the most racially divided big city in America? Milwaukee is. How important is racial reconciliation to us here in this city? How important is global gospel ministry to us? How important is missions work to us? What would it mean for you as an individual to own the task of making disciples all over the world? For someone like Kathleen, it means going somewhere. It means actually giving up a whole month of your, her summer and going to a people group that doesn't even like her <laughs> and loving them and training and ministering and serving in a very practical way. 
That's what it means for her. What does it mean for you? What would it mean for Crosspoint Church to own the task of making disciples all over the world? That's a question that we're wrestling, that we're going to be wrestling with as leaders in the coming months. How important is the church in Cambodia to us? Where we served for six or seven years. How important is the church in Russia to us? How important is the church in Brazil and Peru to us? How important is the church are the churches in Africa and the Middle East to us? How important are the churches in Australia to us? Which is really another way of asking, how important is the gospel to us? Now I know that someone in here is going to be asking or saying this, something like this. If you're not reaching your own city, what's the point of going to another country? I've heard that a few times, more than a few times. But let me tell you something, there is a point, there's a major point. In fact, I've talked to so many people who really struggled, they used to struggle with sharing their faith here at home until they went to the other side of the world. And they saw what God was doing and God broke down barriers. And when they came home, they shared their faith like they've never shared it before and they still are. Sometimes you need, to, you need to get out and go somewhere else first. What Paul said in the beginning of Romans 15 is interesting. He says, before that passage I already shared with you, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. And I believe that's a good word for us this morning as a church. In other words, I'm simply reminding you today that we need to stretch ourselves. We are a church that is doing good things in our cities. We're doing some good things. We're connecting with people. We're loving people. We're serving people. We're sharing the gospel with some people. We're a church that's driven by the preaching of the gospel and, and, and the preaching of the word. And, and we, we embrace sound doctrine and we want to be clear about who we are and what we believe we have knowledge, we have the ability to instruct one another, but what we need to know what we need is a God-sized vision of the world and the gospel and the church, which is what Paul is giving us. He's saying, I've been to from, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, is what he said. All the way all over the first century world. That was pretty much the whole world at that time. In his mind, he'd been all over making disciples. And he's calling the churches in Rome and he's calling us to open our eyes and participate in what God is doing in other parts of the world. And that's what we, that's what we need to do. The gospel is way bigger than we think it is. The church is way bigger than we think it is. And I want to challenge you this morning and over this summer to begin asking God, God, how can I how can I live the gospel? How can I allow the gospel to penetrate my heart and to change the way that I think about people of other races, other ethnicities, people who live in other parts of the world? God, how can I be a part of what you're doing all over the world? How can I strengthen Crosspoint and help Crosspoint participate in what you are doing all over the world? Because at the end of the, when, when history is rolled up like a scroll in the book of Revelation, do you know who we're going to be spending eternity with? It's going to be amazing. <laughs> we're going to be spending eternity with brothers and sisters from every nation, 
from every tribe, from every language, every people group. We're all going to be singing the same song, glorifying God, and it will never get old, ever. Will you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your glory, which is right now, right now covers the earth, Lord. We know that we can see your glory in everything good that you've made. We can see your glory when we, when we dig into your word, when we hear the gospel, when we sing worship to you. We can taste your goodness now. We can experience eternal life now as we live this life in faith and obedience to you, God. But we are looking forward to the day, God, when you will put the sickle down and reap the harvest when everyone who calls you Father will be gathered up and brought home into your presence. And God, may we be among them. May we be there in your presence singing hallelujah to the Lamb who was slain. And glory to God in the highest with people from all over the world, God. I mean, I can't imagine anything better than that. And I pray, God, that you would help us to step outside of our comfort zones and outside of our little world to see what you're doing, Lord, and to follow you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.